All right. Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go to Matthew chapter 27. And we'll take just a few moments and follow Matthew's uh, text from, for uh, the first part of our lesson. And we basically covered the burial last time, so we'll not spend too much time following, but I just want to read one little phrase and put something in your mind to think about. Now, remember, Jesus was buried, and they had to bury him quickly, as the other uh, uh, accounts said, because the Sabbath was coming. And we have Luke here... uh, that says here in verse uh, 61, I mean, sorry, in verse 62, it says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priest and Pharisees came together unto Pilate. Now, what we have is Jesus being buried, and of course, there's some questions, and, and different people would argue different ways, and And again, we've spent a little more time than I would like on this. The fact that Jesus was crucified is not so important what day, but we do want to see uh, that there is in the scriptures a simple way for the Bible to be fulfilled. And for three days and three nights, that would put it on Thursday. And of course, where the Friday people go to most of the time is this whole idea that They had to hurry to get Jesus buried because the next day was the Sabbath. And uh, we've gone over this, that in the Bible, there is actually more than one type of Sabbath. A Sabbath was a day of rest uh, during the Feast of uh, the Tabernacles in the fall. The first day of the feast was a Sabbath. The eighth day of the feast was a Sabbath. Uh, In the uh, feast of uh, the Passover, the first day of unleavened bread was a Sabbath because the actual day before the Passover meal was celebrated was a day of work and preparation. You had to roast the lamb with fire. That couldn't be a Sabbath because you you were not allowed to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And so it's interesting that Matthew just puts in here on the next day after the day of preparation, possibly that could be one of the things that people have just kind of passed over. I checked a few commentaries, and of course they all said, well, the next day is the Sabbath, so that's what it's talking about there. But could it be that Matthew was just referring to, as has been proposed, that there was a double Sabbath here, that there was actually more than one day in this week that would be regarded as a Sabbath because of the keeping of the Passover. It's also interesting to note that the scribes, or I mean the Pharisees and the chief priest, did not enjoy the Passover very much because they had come to the conclusion by sunup the next morning that they needed to go into Pilate and get a guard to guard the tomb of Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Were the disciples, as Jesus was on the cross, telling the Pharisees and the chief priests, you just wait till the third day? No, they were all hidden somewhere. They had no understanding. In fact, on Resurrection Sunday, 
when Jesus came out of the grave, they didn't believe the women that went back. They didn't believe anybody until Peter said, I've seen the resurrected Lord that afternoon. In fact, it would be the next Sunday night before Thomas would believe that Jesus had been risen from the dead. Where in the world did the Pharisees have the wherewithal to come up with this conclusion that none of those who followed Jesus had come up with? Could I suggest that that took some time? Uh, That they were actually in the habit of plotting and planning even on the Sabbath day, the demise of Jesus, as they had done uh, on many other occasions. And it's interesting that in order to protect their traditions, to protect what they thought was keeping the law, they had to defile the Sabbath to plan the murder And after they had accomplished the death of Jesus Christ, and of course we know, I'm talking from their point of view, they did not kill Jesus. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Amen. But in their minds, they had plotted and and were finally able to carry through the murder of Jesus. And then the next morning as the sun comes up, they're back in at Pilate's judgment hall getting a guard. Sounds like they really rested on the Sabbath to me. How about you? Um, now, these were the most religious men in the, of the Jewish people at this point, as far as outward keeping of religion. And so, what we have here is the ladies rested until Sunday morning, It was possible that this was a double Sabbath, even though we have this uh, statement in here. The chief priests then go get a guard and have the tomb secured. It says they set a seal, and uh, the whole idea of that seal was a Roman seal could only be broken on the pains of death. It took a greater authority to break the seal than he who set the seal. Isn't it amazing how the scribes and the Pharisees who hate Rome, who despise Roman rule, who did everything they could to subjugate and to to, uh, dishonor and to frustrate what the Romans were doing when they got in trouble, when they were looking for someone to enforce death upon Jesus, who do they turn to? The Romans. It's amazing what sin will make you do. And so now we have the tomb. This is going to be Friday morning. We now have Saturday morning. The guard has been there. And now it begins to dawn Sunday. Now, if you don't mind, I'm just going to talk our way through this story. I love this part, the resurrection uh, of Jesus, because there was so much going on. In fact, many people who read this, they try to synthesize the four accounts that are given here, and they come and they say they're contradictory. Uh, I find no contradiction in the four accounts. In fact, we'll have them put right here as, uh, as I believe the Bible outlines them happening. Uh, before dawn, the angel comes, rolls away the stone. They tell us that stone weighed maybe as much as 4,000 pounds, 5,000 pounds. Uh, 
and just rolls the stone away, the guards feign death. Uh, They pretended to be dead men because they were afraid of what that angel would do to them if they had challenged him. And uh, before uh, any of us condemn those men for being cowards, this was not a man. This was God. Uh, I'd be a coward too. Uh, And so they're laying there on the ground as the morning lights up before dawn, the, the light from the appearance of the angel, the stone is rolled away, the angel sits on the door. I just wonder if he folded his arms and said, okay, guys, what are you going to do about it? But uh, that's just imagination there. But the Roman soldiers feigned themselves as dead men, and as soon as the light disappeared, so did they. Now, I wonder what they did. I imagine they went and found a little place somewhere where they could hide, where they would feel safe. Uh, they dare not go back to the palace where uh, the, their superior officer was and, and Pilate was because in Rome, deserting your post was a death penalty. And it was not just death, it was death by torture. Uh, It was not something that any Roman soldier, in fact, they made it so hideous that any Roman soldier in his right mind would choose death over desertion. This was just not something that was done. And if they found out you deserted, the Romans had people who would hunt you down if it took 50 years and find you and bring you back. That's just the way they did business. It was, a, uh, it was not something that you played around with. If you were a Roman soldier, you stayed your post or you died trying. So they're trying to figure out what in the world they're going to do. Who's going to believe them that this guy floated down out of the sky and rolled a 4,000-pound stone out of the way and dared him to come and fight with him. I mean, who's going to believe that? And so the guard is now run away. The tomb is desolate. The, st- the door is, the stone is rolled away. And as this happens, we have three ladies walking up to the tomb and they're having a discussion among themselves. You see, they had witnessed that stone rolled in place. They knew that it took several men to put that stone in place and they were only three ladies and they were trying to figure out who was going to roll the stone away. From their conversation, we know that they had no idea of the Roman seal. Otherwise, they wouldn't have even gone to the tomb because they knew how the Romans felt about transgressing their laws and all of this Roman cruelty was just part of Jewish history. And so they had no idea about the seal or the guard. They got there. The tomb was uh, uh, quiet. The, The stone was rolled away. And if we read John's account very carefully, he'll tell us that Mary does not approach to the tomb, but she immediately turns around and runs back to the disciples. They're there in the upper room with the door locked for fear of the Jews. The other two ladies approach the tomb and walk in, and what do they see? They see an angel, two angels, 
And they tell them, Why look ye for the dead among the living? He is risen, as he said. And they turn and leave the tomb to go tell the disciples. Scarcely have they gone to tell the disciples than Peter and John come running down to the tomb with Mary Magdalene tagging on behind. John gets there first and he looks in, but he doesn't go in out of uh, 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 decorum toward Peter because Peter was the older apostle. He waits at the door, but it says in John's account that he saw and believed. He didn't need any more convincing that Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter goes in. They don't see any angels. All they see is the empty grave clothes. And and by the way, if we have any here that wonder whether the Shroud of Turin is a fake or it's something real, the, the Bible answers it very carefully. He had a linen napkin wrapped around his head. The Shroud of Turin is one piece that goes from head to toe. So therefore, it does not fit the biblical pattern, and therefore, it is a fraud. By the way, they allowed some scientists to investigate the Shroud of Turin a few years ago. I think this was about 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, they did some, uh, they were able to clip a piece of the, shroud off and tested for carbon-14 testing and found out that it was medieval cloth. Now, that would be one of the greatest miracles, that Jesus could have been wrapped in a piece of cloth that hadn't been made for uh, nearly 1,500 years. Uh, You know, that maybe that's where the miracle of the shroud is, and the blood on the shroud had no red corpuscles in it. But it did have red pigment because it was paint. And so, it is a fake, certified by the Bible, and agreed to by science. But people still worship it. Why? Because it's always easier to worship a relic than it is the Creator. You see, the relic... My only responsibility is to preserve the relic and to honor it. The creator, my responsibility is every moment of every day. That's why relics are much more popular than the creator is. Because when I worship him, he demands something in return. Amen? Amen. So, we now have... Just in a very few moments, the guards have run away. The ladies have come. Mary Magdalene turns back, runs away. The two ladies approach to the tomb. They're told by the angels that Jesus has risen. They turn to go back to the upper room. The two disciples come. They run. They walk into the tomb. They turn around and they walk back toward the upper room. Mary Magdalene has now arrived at the tomb, probably could not run as fast as the apostles And she weeps because everybody's gone. It's empty and she's alone. And Jesus walks up behind her, his first appearance, and calls her name. But then he commands her not to touch him. 
Yet just a few moments later, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, have yet to make it back to the upper room. Now, there's a little bit of a thing here. Mary's been to the upper room and back. James and John, uh, Peter, I mean, Peter and John have come from the upper room. They're on their way back. All in the time that it took these ladies to try to get back to the upper room. Um, could I challenge you if you had seen two angels that told you Jesus was risen, you might not just walk as fast or as straight as you would normally walk. Uh, you might take the long way thinking you're taking the short way because there just would be uh, a little confusion and overwhelming joy in your soul. Amen. But yet when they meet Jesus, he says, all hail. And Matthew tells us that they hold him by the feet. Now, I didn't put this in the outline here, but I believe that that was the moment between Mary Magdalene and the two women that Jesus ascended as he told Mary Magdalene. In fact, let's just go there. I want to I read that passage tonight. Book of John, chapter 20. Let's start in verse 16. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turneth herself and saith unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then we get to Matthew, and Jesus says, All hail, and they hold him by the feet. It would just be a proper synthesis, a proper putting together that what Jesus said he had not done in this verse, he had done by the time he met the two ladies. Amen? And that is described in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, where Jesus ascended into heaven, now to appear in the presence of God for us, having obtained an eternal redemption. You see, on the day of atonement, the priest would enter into the holy place with the blood of a bullock, and later on with the blood of a baby goat. In total darkness, the air filled with the smoke of the incense of the golden censer, he would sprinkle toward the center of the room the blood that was offered seven times. The animal itself would be burned without the camp. Jesus suffered without the camp, according to Hebrews chapter 13 in total fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Only when he appeared in the presence of God for us, it was not with the blood of a sacrifice, it was with his own blood. And that's where our sins were paid for. People often say, well, how can you not lose your salvation? Well, can you enter into heaven and remove the bloodstains from the garments of God where Jesus sprinkled them on resurrection Sunday morning? Uh, 
I trow not to quote our Savior. Uh, it's not going to happen. He would not let you. It has been finished. Amen. You cannot lose your salvation because God will not change the sacrifice. All of that happened in just a few moments on that Sunday morning. All of the history of the ages. He led captivity captive, the Bible tells us. From what we can understand, the saved dead were not allowed into heaven, into the very presence of God. They were where Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 16, a place called Abraham's bosom. They were held there until the price had been paid. Then he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And he took them with him and they are forever with the Lord. And one one of us passes through the veil of this life. Guess where we are? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I'll promise you one thing. I've heard so many preachers, I can't wait. I want to talk to Peter and ask him how the fishing was. And I want to talk to Abraham. And let me tell you something. Read Revelation 4 and 5. There's only one place you're going to want to be. That's before the throne. There is nothing else given any credence in heaven except God. That's what heaven's about, my friend. So try to get used to thinking about him now. It'll help you adjust when he takes you up there. Amen? If you're too busy thinking about yourself and what you're going to do, uh, you're going to be out of place up there. You're going to be out of step because what goes on in heaven is all about God. He is going to show himself through our lives in the ages to come. Trophies of his grace, we are called. And you know what? There's not going to be one word spoken about you. I don't know if you've ever heard this song, Brother Mike, be in a missions conference. I'm sure you have. Thank you for giving unto the Lord, for giving to the Lord. Yeah, he rolled his eyes too. That was good. I was hoping to see that. Oh, I hate that song. No one is going to say thank you. They're going to say thank Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. Uh, during the runoff election, of which there were only, I can't remember the total number of votes in the whole city. It was less than 100,000 votes. They cost $13 million to collect. And uh, I'm not so against it because that's money I use to get my hunting license and go deer hunting, but... The simple truth is I use that time to talk to people. And one of the ladies there, of course, Catholic in her origin and all of her upbringing, just could not wrap her head around this idea that there weren't super special Christians and then the regular 
know-nothing Christians like the rest of us. And I kept trying to give her the gospel and explain to her, you can't be saved by what you do. God's not interested in what you do. Yeah, I know that. No, you don't. You, you don't get it. You, you're still poisoned by that thought process that somehow somebody is special. Let me tell you, there's only one special person in heaven. In fact, one of the ladies, she heard us, overheard someone talk, said, tell me the difference. And so I started telling her the difference, and she started going, oh, my. Oh, oh, my. It's, it's really different. I said, yes, ma'am. It, it really is different. Because all religion, except Bible-believing Christianity, is about you and what you do. Only the Bible is about Jesus and what he did. Because only he had the right. Only he is worthy to stand in the presence of God. Only he, and don't ask me how he did it. How he appeared in heaven with his own blood that had been shed three days before on the cross. That will leave God take care of. Amen. I just believe what the Bible says. And he sprinkled that blood upon the mercy seat. And if you've been here for our study of the tabernacle, you know that there's only one thing in heaven that fits the description of the mercy seat. And that is the very throne of Almighty God. Jesus did that resurrection Sunday morning, as far as we can understand. Of course, in the mind of God, it was completed before the foundation of the universe. And if you can explain that one, there's something wrong with you because that's not explainable. Amen? So now, about this time, maybe a little before, a little after, we have four very scared, very confused men showing up at the Jewish temple. Very unusual for Roman soldiers to try to make direct contact with the chief priests. That was not their job. In fact, there had been more than one riot instigated in the city of Jerusalem by Roman soldiers going out of the lines of protocol. In fact, the first emperor... Uh, uh, I mean, the first Roman legionary, the, the uh, head of the army, when he entered into Jerusalem, he found out that the temple was where they worshipped their gods and understanding that he was the representative of God because he was Caesar's representative, rode right up and took his horse into the holy place. And immediately the entire city went into a riot. But he was just doing what he thought. And so these soldiers were taking a huge risk. But I think that they were probably, what do we call it, street smarts? To figure this thing out. You see, what was the story that they gave Pilate to get a guard? We don't want the disciples coming when no one's looking and stealing the body and saying he's resurrected. 
Do you think those soldiers knew that story? I am almost positive that it was given to them in a very derogatory fashion. You're going to guard a tomb because they're afraid somebody's going to steal the body. Well, nobody stole the body. But whatever showed up sure scared the living daylights out of them. They knew there'd be no mercy if they went to the Roman uh, authority. So they show up at the chief priest. And all of a sudden, bags of money started to be handed through the door. How many of you are there? Okay, is this enough? Uh, you know, we're still a little shaky here. That was a terror. Okay, here's a little more. Oh, now, now we're getting close. Okay, here's a... I mean, they're going to make sure... Where did that money come from? It came from the treasury of the temple. Isn't that amazing? These men who hated Rome were taking money that had been dedicated to God and giving it to Roman soldiers and then they taught them how they wanted them. Don't tell that story. We don't want these superstitious people to think anything supernatural happened. How could you deny that? I mean, here comes a guy floating down out of the sky while it's all dark and it's all light where he is. I mean, the Roswell crowd would really like this story for the exception that it's attached to God, of which they already refuse to believe. Uh, Roswell is the UFO people. The kooks, the nuts, the coast-to-coast AM crowd, if, you li- if you're up late... I mean, these are the crazy people. They'd give anything to have an eyewitness to some guy floating down out of the sky and showing up from another realm. And it really happened. And they denied it exists because it came from the Bible. Don't you just love the wisdom of God and how it confounds the foolishness of men? And so the story... In fact, I, I believe I checked this out one time in uh, the most famous history of the Jewish people. Guess what story is in there concerning the resurrection of Christ? Uh, this one. That his disciples stole the body while the guards slept. You know, that is such an absolute ludicrous lie. I mean, they're not even good liars. How in the world? And yet, could you imagine if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll take care of you. Could you imagine Pilate with all of his spies running out through the city starting to pick up on this thing a week later that the disciples stole the body of Jesus while they slept? And all of a sudden, who is it now? Chief priest, uh, we, we want this story left alone. You, what, you came to me and you got a guard to protect the tomb so this wouldn't happen. And now Jerusalem is full of the story that this happened and I've traced it back to you. I mean, Pilate was no fool. He was not going to be bought off with gold from the temple. 
it would be a much higher price. Uh, you remember back when you wanted to set that guy free at the beginning of the week? And we said we had no king but Caesar. Would, would you like us to send a letter to the Nero? I mean, not Nero, he wasn't alive yet, but to the emperor telling him that story. I mean, this was the kind of manipulation. And you wonder, and I'm not saying it was absolutely just that, but it would have had to have been something along those lines, threatening to set the city on an uproar and to start riots in the city. I mean, these men had the ability to do that. They knew it. And that's how they kept the story, which is so obviously a lie, alive. And as the time began farther and farther removed, we have the story that his body was stolen, stolen while the guards slept, that Jesus actually wasn't crucified at all. That was invented in the 1960s that they actually substituted someone who hung on the cross for Jesus. Someone said, well, actually, they substituted for someone who, uh, who imitated Jesus after he had risen from the dead. And, I mean, they come up with so many ridiculous stories. You read the Bible. You can only come to one conclusion. That all of these people saw a person which they did not first identify as Jesus, but later would identify as the risen Lord. You can have mass deception of people with psychology and all that kind of stuff, but you can't do what was talked about in the Bible. You can't have 500 people having the same delusion at the same time. It doesn't work, not even at a rock concert, my friend. Uh, you can't have, and this would be a lot further than anything that people experience in one of those. So we have the, the guard getting the money and starting that very day to spread the rumors that they were taking a nap and the disciples. And by the way, if you were actually sleeping, how did you know who did it? Do you see how foolish the story is? I mean, there's nothing believable about it. Do you think one Roman soldier could take care of 11 disciples? Uh, without a doubt. Even if Peter was swinging his little sword, uh, there's no way that 11 disciples were, taking care, were, were going to... And if they were asleep, then how could they see through their eyelids and through their unconscious minds to identify the person who did whatever they did? Uh, I mean, I love the way that it's recorded. There's absolutely no way you can come to any conclusion except that Jesus did raise again from the dead. Amen? Well, as we move through the day, Jesus appears to Peter, Luke 24, verse 34, in the, uh, as the two men come back from the road to Emmaus uh, just after sundown or shortly thereafter, um, they said, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Peter. Finally, the disciples are believing. Something has happened. Two men, Cleopas and another, are walking 
Emmaus, if we have everything correct, is about a seven-mile trip. If you walk fast and sprightly, you can make that trip in an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes. Most people walk between five and six miles an hour. A slow walk would be about three miles an hour or so. Somewhere around an hour and a half to two-hour trip, they're walking, and all of a sudden Jesus is there, joins with them, and has a discussion. And they have no idea who they're talking to. The day is far past. They've entered the home of one of them there in Emmaus, and they're preparing dinner. And it says, Jesus breaks the bread, gives thanks, and disappears. And immediately, their understanding is opened. And they realize that it was Jesus. Now, over the years, people have questioned this. How could they not know it was Jesus? How could, how, how could this and, and all of that? And the simple truth is, Jesus was in his resurrected, glorified bodies. It gives us a little glimpse into maybe why we will not have all of the same attachments that we do here on earth to other people. Because our only desire is going to be toward be toward Jesus Christ. Amen? But don't worry. I will be closer to my wife and children in heaven than I possibly ever could be here on earth. Because the Bible says we'll all be one with Christ. You know, science fiction, they love the idea of a shared conscience. Do they not? I mean, it's just a repetitive theme. All through science fiction... The Bible's a whole lot better than that. We're going to share conscience with God in heaven. How can you get any better than that? That's why we will know as we are known. Amen? I mean, we, we get these appearances, and we're not going to be so wrapped up about how we appear and all of that. I know one thing, I'm going to be thinner in heaven than I am here. Amen? Um, and we're going to enjoy the blessings of heaven for eternity. As the two return that seven-mile journey to Jerusalem, Jesus appears to the ten. Thomas is missing. If you want to know one of the reasons why I always, as long as God gives us the ability, I, I never want to give up Sunday night service. Because that was the first church service. Jesus appeared to the disciples Sunday night. Why? Because if they were going to eat, they had to work Sunday during the day. Sabbath was the day of rest to the Jewish people. Sunday was a work day. If you didn't work, honestly, you didn't eat. And so Jesus appeared to those disciples there in that upper room Sunday night. Luke tells us they were trying to climb out the window. They were terrified until he ate some food and proved to him, them that he was the living Christ. Amen? They told Thomas, and Thomas says, not until I stick my fingers in the nail prints, not until I thrust my hand in the spear wound, will I believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. The next Sunday night, Thomas is where he's supposed to be. 
And Jesus walks in and says, come on over here, Thomas. Here they are. Here's the nail prints. Here's the wound. Thomas didn't need to touch. He fell down on his face and said, my Lord and my God. A little while after this, a day or two, the, the disciples have walked back to Galilee. Seven of them are together, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. They went fishing at night. They caught absolutely nothing. I wonder if Peter was having any recollections of the story in Luke chapter 5 where he'd fished all night and caught nothing. You ever think about that? And all of a sudden, there's a man on the shore speaking to them, have you any meat? Children, have you any meat? And they say, no. And he says exactly the same thing he said in Luke, cast on the right side and ye shall find. They do. And the net is full of fishes. And John immediately turns to Peter and says, it's got to be the Lord. I remember this. We've been here before. And Peter puts on his fisher's coat and jumps in the water and splashes and thrashes and walks his way back to the shore to, just to be with Jesus. You wonder why Peter was so anxious to be with the Lord. Probably had something to do with him denying three times, don't you think? And later on, the disciples that were in the boat were dragging the thing. Just to give you an example of, of who and what Peter was, you have six men in the boat trying to get this net in, and Peter wades out and grabs the net all by himself and drags in 153 fish all at one time. Now, how many of you have ever caught a fish over five pounds? I mean, it feels like 40 pounds on the pole. You imagine them wiggling and pulling in 153 fish, the Bible tells us, and don't talk to Harold Camping about that. Uh, he's got all kinds of whacked ideas about 153 fish represent the nations of the world and all this kind of gobbledygook. It was just, that's an awful lot of fish to put in one net, let me tell you. It was, it was a miracle that the net didn't break. And so Jesus tells the disciples to bring in the fish which they have caught and they lay them on the coals and they eat and Jesus asked Peter three times, Simon Peter, Peter Barjona, Simon Barjona, lovest thou me more than these? And three times Peter has to testify to the Lord that he loves him. I like the simplest thought I've ever had on the passage, three denials, three affirmations, an opportunity to make right what was done wrong. Don't get into the Greek words because you cannot find me one verse in the Bible where it says God lowers his level of love to meet ours. God accepts our love as we give it. But his never lessens for us. Amen? It says that he appears to them 500 at one time. Sometime in this 40-day period from the resurrection until Jesus' ascension, he also appears to his half-brother James, who then becomes the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, 
uh, a few years down the road here. And then Jesus is talking to them about 40 days later. He walks out the city of Jerusalem up a little hill onto what is called the Mount of Olives. And all of a sudden the disciples are looking at his knees then his toes. And as they look, he continues to rise until he is covered by the clouds and the angels appear to them and give us the promise of his return. The last words Jesus gave to his disciples were, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. You want to know what Open Door Bible Baptist Church is trying to do? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Guess what? Once you get there, then you can get started. Teaching them to observe. That means obey and live all things whatsoever I have commanded you, even unto the end of the world. And lo, I am with ye always. I'm sorry. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. We got through the Gospels. It only took us 29 weeks. But, um, and no, we've not covered every letter, but we've gone through the story of the Gospels. I have yet to find one contradiction in the history of the Gospels. If we will just allow a little bit of space there in the last week of Christ when it gives these time references, and and, and I really believe the passage in Luke there could be uh, used the day after the day of preparation rather than putting the word Sabbath in there. That would allow us to realize that that wasn't the actual Friday evening, Saturday morning Sabbath that Jesus was actually buried Thursday afternoon. We have our three days. We have our three nights. We no longer have our silent Wednesday. Nor do we try to cram all of the events into two days and have Jesus in the ground for four nights, as would the Wednesday resurrection. It's the simplest Synthesis of all of the records in some of the earliest histories where we have people who write about this. Good Friday did not come into vogue until the Middle Ages. In fact, there was very little talk, but there, there is some recorded writings in before 250, I think, or before 300 A.D. that we have that do talk about a Thursday, crucifixion and burial. And... People want to argue because they want to uphold tradition. I'll tell you what, we don't need tradition. We just need to be obedient to the scriptures. And all God's people said, Dear Heavenly Father,